We are going through this series in the Gospel of Matthew. This is, today is part 27 of uh, uh, part 257 of our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been here for a long time, and we're just in chapter 9. If you're just joining us, the Gospel of Matthew is a biographical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew means the good news that Matthew is telling you about, and the good news is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we've been tracing this theme of authority. Jesus is presented as the man with power and authority, power and authority over wind and wave, the demonic, illness, sickness, and he's doing all these things. He has the authority to forgive sins. And then last week, we saw what happened when the man with power and authority encounters someone who is considered an enemy, a tax collector. So what will like the, the possible messianic figure, the man with power and authority, do to the dude that everyone universally hates? What we saw last week is Jesus shares a meal with him. Jesus eats with him. He extends the right hand of fellowship. He offers grace and forgiveness. And that was an absolute scandal at the time. I mean, people couldn't even like understand what was happening. How can Jesus, this so-called righteous man, this so-called good rabbi, good teacher who represents God, how can he have fellowship with tax collectors and sinners? Now, out of that scandal emerges several questions that the people are asking, and we're going to encounter one specific question today, and it comes based upon the scandal. Like, they can't, they can't figure out what's going on. So what happens after that meal that he has with the tax collectors, it says that then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, some introductory notes. First, Jesus is is asked this question um, about fasting. And oftentimes, when we encounter this passage, we, we will immediately focus on the question of fasting. And that makes sense because the question is explicitly about fasting. But what Jesus is going to do is something remarkable. He's not just going to answer some questions about fasting. He's going to use this question as a springboard to answer much larger, much more profound and significant questions. And so we can't lose sight of that because many times we're left kind of feeling like our question about fasting wasn't answered. Because whenever fasting is talked about in Scripture like this, you're probably going like, well, I, I want to know the answer to that. Did Jesus fast? Did the disciples fast? Does that mean I have to fast? What constitutes a proper fast? What if I don't fast? How long do I have to fast for it to actually count? What constitutes a proper fast? Because I have some friends who do fasting for health reasons. And I was wondering if I could kind of kill two birds with one stone. Like, I want to do fasting for some health reasons, but does God still honor that? And so you have all those questions emerging, and your eyes are focused on fasting. And again, Jesus is going to use this question as a springboard to answer much more profound and significant questions. And in doing so, he will strike at all ideological frameworks, all philosophical structures, and all religious claims that have been made. I'm not exaggerating. That's That's how deep his answer is going to be. But before we get there, let's go back to the original question. Who asks it? Disciples of John. Now, these are disciples of John the Baptist. Oftentimes, we can immediately think that whenever a question is asked, by G- asked to Jesus, that people want to trap him. 
Because we see that if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, right? Other people ask Jesus questions, not to get answers, but to try to trap him and make him look like a fool in front of the masses. This is, is not the case. These are disciples of John the Baptist. We don't know much about them, but they're probably not trying to come and trap Jesus. What they're trying to do is, is answer a legitimate question. Like, we fast, John the Baptist fasts, the Pharisees fast, everyone who cares about the Lord is fasting, but you and your disciples do not fast. It's like, well, well what's up with that? It's a legitimate question. Pious Jews at this time period would have fasted twice a week. So not everyone in Israel, but people who were really committed to serving the Lord would have in their regular schedule two times of fasting. They would have fasted Mondays and Thursdays. And they obviously would have fasted other times than that, but on a basic bare minimum, it would be Mondays and Thursdays. So they're sort of going like, dude, we fast all the time, and it ain't great. You know? And all these, the disciples, they're not having a fast. So if we kind of, you know, I'm, now I'm reading into it, but I'd be like, so if we like switch sides, do we have to fast? Like, that's not the point of it, but you have to understand this is a legitimate question. Everyone else is fasting. In Jewish thought, the three like, pillars of pious behavior were fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. And now you have this guy, Jesus, who's not doing one of the three. So it's a legitimate question, and Jesus is going to answer by giving three images. Three images that sort of answer the question, but again, do so much more than merely talk about fasting. Okay, image number one. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay, so first thing you need to know is that Jewish weddings in this region at this time period most likely lasted, give or take, seven, for, for seven days. It's a big celebration, you know? Small towns, small communities, population isn't as big as it today, so you're not having as many weddings. So when that occurs in your, say, small village, it's a big deal, and we're going to celebrate it. Everyone's going to get involved. And if, let's say, you had family members who lived far away, you had family members that needed to travel from, say, southern Israel. That's a 10 days journey on foot. You know? And then if you have some 30-minute ceremony with two-hour reception dinner, your family's going to be like, we traveled 10 days on foot to get here for this little thing. So this isn't going to work. So what you'd had is these big giant celebrations that are seven days long where there's great food and feasting and celebration. And Jesus is saying, why are you going to um, mourn and fast in a time of celebration? On top of that, there's this phrase, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The wedding guest literally in the Greek is sons of the bridal chamber. It's a weird phrase. But it, sons of the bridal chamber means something roughly akin to our modern understanding of the, the groomsmen or the best men. So think of, think of it like, um, can, the, can the groomsmen or the best man, can they mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And the reason why that's important is everyone at the, all the wedding guests are celebrating, but who should celebrate the most? those who find themselves in closest relational proximity to the bride and groom, which is going to be the family and the bridal party. 
So how could it be that the, the, the best men are mourning and fasting in this time of celebration? It's completely incongruent, and Jesus points this out. He says, no, this is a time to celebrate. However, he does foreshadow and point to something that is coming his way. He says there will come a time when the bridegroom is removed. And when that happens, you are to pray and you are to fast, and it will be appropriate. Now, here's how you know this isn't just about fasting. There's no way that Jesus is answering this question and just trying to speak about fasting. Because there's an alternate answer that Jesus can give. And we'll call this alternate answer the answer that you would have given. Or the answer that I would for surely give. Okay. You get asked the question, why don't you fast? Why aren't you fasting? Why don't you disciples fast? So if I'm Jesus in that instance, I'm going, you want to come at me with that question? You want to come talk to me? Okay, get ready. You got to check yourself, bro, because come a little closer. Let me tell you some things. You want to talk to me about fasting? Do you know what I just did? Go back five chapters. You know what I did? I fasted for 40 days. You don't fast for 40 days. And you know where I fasted, bro? In the wilderness, a barren desert wasteland where it was ridiculously hot. You fast, okay, you fasted on Monday from sunup to sundown in the comfort of your home. Don't, don't get at me, man, 40 days in the, the wilderness. And you know, who, you know who I met in the wilderness? A supernatural satanic being who's the great enemy of God's people. And he tempted me and we fought spiritually and guess who came up on top? Me. I'm the winner. I was victorious. So don't talk to me about fasting. You know that's what, you would, that's what I would do. Talk to me about fasting, man. I fast for 40 days in the wilderness, fought Satan. Back up. <laughs> you know? and, then, and then on top of that, he could say, didn't, didn't you listen to the sermon that I gave when I was on the mountain? I presupposed that my followers were to fast, but I told them when they do fast, don't let the whole world know. Just keep it between you and the Heavenly Father. So not only should you not come at me, you weren't even paying attention. Next question. You know? So there's something more going on here. Yes, Jesus is answering a question about fasting, but he's, asked, he's, he's doing something far more than that. goes on. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for that patch, patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Now, this is a little difficult for, for us because... We, in the modern world, the majority of us, not all of us, but a big chunk of us, we get a tear in our clothing or something like that, and we just throw it away. Like, if, if you're wearing a t-shirt, it gets a hole in it, I'm not going to try to repair it or to stitch some, some fix to it, just throw it, get away. Or some of you are like, I was going to wear this shirt with a hole in it, I don't care. You know what I mean? But you're not, you're not thinking about how when things wear down, or tear how to fix them. Now, some of you may, but most modern people, something happens to our clothing, we get rid of it. If, if, if our shoe starts falling apart, we don't spend time fixing. Now, think about this. You go back 50 years, most towns had multiple shoe repairmen. as a standard occupation to have a shoe repairman. But now you're lucky to have one shoe repairman in a given town or city. They're not everywhere. 
And it's because, as modern people, when things wear out, we get rid of them. That is a different world than the people of Jesus' day. You don't have a wardrobe full of clothes. You don't have that. And if, if your one outer garment got a hole in it, you would spend some time and resources trying to fix that. Now, what you would do is you would take some type of other material and you would stitch that into the garment that had the hole in it. But this is where the image speaks of a problem. If you have a normal set of clothes that you've been wearing and washing, that's shrunk. The new material, if it's unshrunk, has not shrunk. And you know you encounter this, like, not shrunk stuff all the time. You ever been uh, shopping and you buy something? You try it on in the store? Fits nice? Man, I feel good, man. Man, I feel good. Fits well. And then you wash it. And you try it on, you're like, kind of tight. You know what I mean? A little tight. It's like, oh, man. Well, that's what happened. It shrunk. So what happens when you have a garment that's been worn and shrunk, and now you stitch some new garment into it that is unshrunk? The second that new garment is washed, it begins to shrink, and it actually pulls at the stitches. And so what happens is, is a greater hole or tear than you originally had. So what is Jesus' image communicating? Jesus is saying... That which is new cannot be stitched into the old. That's image number two. Image number three. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskin and both are preserved. Now this third image is a little bit more difficult and we have to have some understanding of how wine is made. Now, wine in the ancient world was made in a very similar way to the way it is today. In fact, the fundamental elements are the same. We just have modern technology, and we're doing it with mass production, but like the basic elements are the same. You have to get grapes, create grape juice by pressing, and then enter enter a fermenting agent with wine that is yeast. You're going to put yeast as a fermenting agent into the grape juice. And that fermenting agent is going to eat the sugars in the grape juice and expel out CO2, carbon dioxide. There's a problem, though, is if you put that fermenting agent, yeast, in with grape juice and you have it in a sealed jar, that CO2 is going to continually be released and it's going to build pressure into that jar. And eventually, if you don't let out that gas, you don't let out that CO2, that container will explode. It'll explode. And some of you know this because you, you, you do like home fermenting. Any of you? Nobody. Don't be, don't be ashamed. It's cool. Yeah, see, as soon as you like kind of looking around, is that, is that cool? It is cool. Especially in this case. Let's say you're at home and you're, ferment, you're fermenting the greatest of all the fruit and vegetable kingdom, uh, jalapeno, serrano peppers, some anonymous red peppers. Okay, you're fermenting that. Okay, as, as the fermenting agent is eating the sugar, gas is being released, and that pressure is building up in that jar. You have to find a way to release the gas, release the pressure, otherwise that glass will explode. Explode everywhere. 
this probably happened to some of you. Like you, you, you didn't know or you forgot how you were going to let out the gas and there's an explosion. So in the modern world, we have special lids that allow the gas to escape. Or sometimes some of you might use cheesecloth on the lid to, to just let out a little bit of the gas. Or some of you might, raise your hand if you know about burping your, your jar. Anybody? One, two, three, four. Now people being brave. You can burp your jar. Do you know this? It's like burping a baby. You know, you pat him. So what happens is that gas is building in that mason jar, and what you're going to do is just slightly release the lid, and you're going to get a and then you're going to close it back up. What you're doing is just allowing enough of the CO2 to escape, and then you want to seal it up so nothing else gets in there. But if you don't burp that jar, you don't have a special lid, you're not using cheesecloth, the fermentation keeps going, the pressure's building, and you get a massive explosion. Glass, jalapenos, everywhere. So, how did ancient people, without special lids and maybe tons of these glass mason jars, how did they make wine? They used wineskins. And wineskins are animal skins. And in particular, in this region, it would have been goat skins. So you would have goat skins filled with wine. Now here's the trick though. As the fermentation is going on, the CO2 is being released, but the, the animal skin, the goat skin, has a certain level of elasticity, and so it can stretch and be shaped and formed by the gas that's coming out. So because it can stretch, as pressure is released, it's just getting shaped and formed in a new way. It's an awesome, awesome process. There's a problem, though. Once that animal skin, that wine skin, has been stretched from the fermentation process and you take out and use the wine, you can't keep putting in new wine into that. Why? Because the animal skin has already been stretched and formed, and now it's hard. There's no more elasticity, no more stretchability. And so if you were to put new wine into that, there's no give, no stretch, the wine skin tears. And so you lose both wine and the wine skin. Here's a modern-day uh, Bedouin who's doing a similar process. He's actually turning butter in this instance, but it's the same idea. You're using a big, giant animal skin to store something. And new wineskins have give, elasticity. They could be shaped and formed and stretched. So Jesus says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the new wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. It's a beautiful image. Like, think about that image. Because at first it's weird. But go into it. There is, there is this grape juice, and something is added to this, and now this substance is being made into something new. The grape juice is being made into something new, and there's this living, active thing in it the yeast, the fermenting agent, and it's bubbling and teeming with life and changing grape juice into wine. And that new wine is stored in a new vessel. And that new vessel is shaped and formed by the process of new creation. It's incredible. Now let's return to where we started, though. Because I said, Jesus is going to challenge every ideological structure, every philosophical framework, and pretty much every religious claim. So how is he doing that with these statements? 
Jesus is saying, I am doing something new. I am bringing a newness. And this is part and parcel with the mission of Jesus. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. And in Jesus making all things new, he is telling you his mission. There's this, this, this act of, of taking that which is old and making it new, and he has new wine. This is the, the new wine of the gospel. There's a massive problem, though, is that new wine cannot be poured into an old structure, an old vessel. The, the old vessel can't be stretched or formed anymore. So if you pour in the new wine into the old vessel, it breaks and you lose both. So you can't come with existing that you can't come as an existing vessel. You can't come with all these presuppositions that you bring to the table and then try to fit Jesus into it. You can't simply pour a little Jesus into your existing ideological framework or your, your existing behavioral patterns. You can't just try to like fit him in and make him work. Jesus, the new wine of the gospel, has to be primary and foundational. He has to become the center point of your gravitational pull. So think of it like this. Everything in your life is, is, has to orbit around the new work of Jesus. Everything. It's not as if um, you're here and then Jesus is one object floating among many other objects in your life. Everything has to now orbit the person and work of Jesus, the new work that he is doing. He has to be foundational and he has to be primary because you can't pour that new stuff into the old vessel. Which brings us to another massive problem. Okay. Jesus is saying, I have new wine to give. But he's also saying, we can't pour that into old wineskins, old vessels. And then you're going, okay, well, I'm pretty much old wineskin. And I know it, and I feel it. I'm grumpy. I don't even, you know, I've already been stretched and formed. I, I exist as I am. Take it or leave it. It's like, well, how, how do I get new wineskin, I mean, new wine into this old wineskin? How does, how does that work? And so there, there's this problem that emerges. The new cannot be contained in the old. But the answer to the problem is actually embedded into the problem itself. Because the new wine of the gospel can't fit into the old, but the gospel itself is actually the means and mechanism by which the old can be made into new. So you see, like the answer is embedded in it. The problem that the gospel presents is also answered in the gospel itself. And you get these verses in the Old Testament that sort of hint at this. They're, they're speaking of a newness that's coming. Ezekiel 36 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The prophet Ezekiel is looking forward to this this day when, when God himself will bring about a newness and hearts of stone will be turned into flesh. And there's all kinds of various passages in the Old Testament that are sort of looking forward to this in one way or another. And then what is kind of implicitly hinted at in the Old Testament is made explicitly clear in the New Testament. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So you need to be a new vessel to get the new wine, right? Well, how do you become a new vessel? That's the work of the gospel in your life. Because if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And how do you get in Christ so that you could be a new creation? What do you do? What, what do you have to accomplish? And the answer to that is, is nothing. You are made a new creation because of grace. God's grace in your life, received through faith, transforms you from the old vessel to the new. It's not by human achievement or the work of your hands that accomplish this. It's God's grace. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You're a new creation. If you have faith in Jesus right now, you are not an old vessel. You are a new vessel. You are a new creation. Now, the issue with that is some of you are going, I sure don't feel like that, man. I don't feel like a new creation. I still feel like an old wineskin grouchy, grumpy, don't even want to be here, don't like this sermon. The only part I liked about this service is when that gentleman in the back booed that other gentleman up front. <laughs> That's it. But see, here's the thing. What makes you a new creation? Christ does. Do you follow this? It is not your ever-changing subjective emotions and feelings that determine objective reality. Objective reality is not shaped and formed by your ever-changing subjective and emotions. Reality is determined by God, and God's word says that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That's it. It doesn't matter what's in your past. It doesn't matter what's happened. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. And what did you have to do to become a new creation, to be in Christ? Nothing. It was by his grace. So what the gospel does is presents you with the problem. It says, this thing cannot be contained in that which is old. But the gospel also brings a solution. By grace, through faith, God can change you from an old vessel to a new, and then you can be found fit to be a proper vessel to contain the new wine. You can be the right vessel to carry the new work that Christ is doing, the new wine of the gospel. And so the gospel has to be primary in that sense. The gospel has to be foundational. It can't be something that is merely mm, secondary or, again, something that you try to fit in into your life in, or in one way or another. You have to allow yourself to be completely reshaped and reformed. There's this new wine. And if you allow the Lord to put it in you, if you don't explode, it means you're a new wineskin. And now you're allowing that to shape and to form you. Now, there was people in Jesus' day who would not allow that to take place. They brought pre-existing behaviors and ideological presuppositions, and there was no way for the new wine of the gospel to, to take effect in their lives. So let's say, for example, the Pharisees. They believed X, Y, and Z about ABC, and Jesus said something otherwise, and so they immediately wrote him off. 
This new thing that he's talking about, it must be wrong. Remember, this originally started by fasting. It was a question about when is it proper to fast. And she's like, oh man, if you're gonna get caught up in that, wait till you understand that you have to be a whole new vessel. That's how deep this is. And then on top of that, there's people say like the Sadducees who didn't hold to the resurrection. The Sadducees were a group of people, they didn't believe in the afterlife. So if you don't believe in the afterlife, you don't believe in the resurrection, Jesus steps on the scene and he says, I am the resurrection. What do you do with that? You immediately kick that out. You throw that out because that doesn't fit in my existing ideological framework. So obviously this guy is wrong. And what Jesus is saying is, I am not just coming to give you a new set of moral codes. I am not just uh, giving a little amendment to one of your pre-existing ideological beliefs. I am coming and changing the way you view reality. And you have to see things through the lens of the gospel. I have to be primary and foundational, and you have to allow every part of your being to be shaped and formed by me. Now, this is a fundamentally different understanding of the gospel that many of us have inherited. See, many times the gospel becomes something like the ABCs or the front door to a house. So picture it like this. Um, We think the gospel was the thing that we believed when we became a Christian. It's like the front door into being a Christian. And you walk in through the front door, thank you, now I'm a Christian, and I can explore the rest of the house. Now I want to move on to the deeper things of the faith. I want to do some deeper discipleship and theology type of stuff. We've walked past the front door and we're good. Or we think of it like the ABCs. In preschool, you learn the ABCs. You know, ABC, you sing the little song, and then eventually go, okay, I want to move beyond just saying that little song. I want to read books and learn grammar and syntax and proper sentence composition. And so you think the gospel is the ABCs, the thing you learned in preschool that enabled you to become a Christian. Now you can move on to deeper things. You have to understand the gospel is not the front door to to the house. The gospel is the house itself. The gospel is just not learning your ABCs. The gospel is the actual entirety of the alphabet by which you will compose every word and sentence there forward. So everything is shaped. The way you articulate reality is composed and predicated on the alphabet of the gospel that you learned. Or another way to look at it that we've used before is like a lens. The gospel must become the lens by which you see reality. So picture a pair of sunglasses. You put those sunglasses on and now you see the world through those lenses. You see the world through the reality of the gospel. The gospel is not an object that you look at. The gospel becomes the object by which you see the world. And by gospel, I mean the victory of Jesus over Satan's sin and death. Jesus accomplished this by his life, death, and resurrection. So you have to learn to see the world through the victory of Jesus. And if you see the world through the victory of Jesus, trust me, it changes everything. You can't look at another human being the same way. You can't look at it. You will never look at another human being the same way once you understand the victory of Jesus. Everything changes. You can't even look at the plate of food at dinner in a different way. When you allow the new wine of the gospel to be primary, foundational. You're letting yourself be shaped and formed by what Christ is doing. He is center. Everything else orbits around that. 
you see reality through a different lens. C.S. Lewis says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So it's not an object that you merely observed. It's an object that, yes, you can observe, but all other objects are seen by the light given. I don't just look at the gospel. The gospel gives light to my entire reality. It's a very, very different way of looking at it. There's this verse in Romans that's, that's, that's fascinating. It says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Look at that last line. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, who's Paul writing to? Paul's writing to Christians in Rome. He's writing to Christians in Rome, the church of Rome, and he says, I long to come to you so that I can preach the gospel. In which case, the recipients of that letter did not say, Paul, don't you know we're already all Christians? We believe the gospel, and then we became Christians. What we long for you is to come and teach us the deeper stuff. Like, teach us about, like, the controversial stuff. We want to talk about the end times, Paul. Talk to us about all that stuff. And Paul's like, no, I long to come to you so that I can preach the gospel to you. Why? Because anything and everything that Paul could address with that group has to be built upon the gospel. Like, whatever you think about this issue or that issue or this thing that's going on in society or this issue in culture, whatever your view of that is, if you are a Christian, you look at that issue through the lens of the gospel. You look at that issue through the victory of Jesus. How has Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death, how has his life, death, and resurrection changed how I view this problem, this issue? And so everything is built upon the foundation of the person and work of Jesus. So when Paul says, what am I going to talk to you when I come to you? I want to talk to you about the gospel. That doesn't mean he's not going to address all these other issues, because if you read Romans, he does. But if you also read Romans, you know that he's always tying back everything he's talking about to the gospel. In light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how does that change my understanding of this or that? So you see, that's a different way of, it's not just, I believe the gospel and I can move on. So the gospel must be primary. It has to be foundational. Everything else must be built upon it. You can't just try to fit a little Jesus in to the old wineskin. It's brand new wineskin, brand new wine, shape and form me as you will. Now that's not to say there's everything in your previous life is incompatible with the teachings of Jesus, but it is to say that you will hold to certain behavioral patterns, certain ideological presuppositions that are incompatible with the gospel. And at that point, you just say, well, I'm going to hold on to this and I'm going to just kind of squeeze in a little Jesus. No, when you become a Christian, you say, 
I am going to lay everything down at your feet. And I'm going to allow you to shape and form me from here forward. Now, this passage in one sense is easy to understand on a macro level. Like, okay, I get the gospel's foundational, it's primary, I need to have Jesus shape me. But like, what does that look like in a practical sense? How does making the gospel the center point change everything? And I don't have tons of answers to that, but just a couple kind of practical things that I was thinking about how this is kind of mapped upon everyday life. One example deals with entertainment. Okay, so some of us, we watch, we, we watch TV shows and movies that aren't that wholesome. And you probably shouldn't be watching it. And you, you kind of already know you probably shouldn't be watching some of the stuff you're watching. Like, you already know this, okay? But you tell yourself, oh, but I'm already this far in. There's a really good plot. It's developed. You know, I just, I just want to keep. And what you do is you sort of, you kind of try to sneak Jesus into it. So you watch all this stuff that you know you shouldn't. But then you're like, yeah, but you know, I watch... I watched The Chosen, too. I watched some Christian TV shows uh, at Easter time when the Ten Commandments comes on. I watched that old movie. Uh, and, it, like, you put Christian, you, like, sneak it in here and there. I listen to some Christian podcasts, so it balances out. And it's like you try to balance the equation. Rather than saying, how does a mind shaped by the gospel view entertainment? How has a mind that's gospel-saturated, that is allowing Jesus to form and shape it, how does that person, how does that mind approach entertainment? Because that's a fundamentally different posture. The old posture is, um, what's the worst thing I could watch? Like, where's the line? What makes something inappropriate for Christians to watch? And then I'm going to watch things right up into that line. And then you kind of feel bad about it, so let me watch some good things too. Do you see the difference? One is asking, do I have to fast? How much do I have to fast? Mondays and Thursdays. What constitutes a proper fast? Can I kill two birds with one stone fast? Rather than what, what is God honoring? If I've given my life to Jesus, what does a Christian view of entertainment look like? And let me just do one more punch for you. A lot of the stuff that you think is not that bad and wholesome and appropriate was considered vile moral filth by Christians just 20 years ago. But you've been inched forward, inch by inch, slowly over a couple decades to think this isn't that bad. It's not as bad as this show that my friend watches. Yeah, well, that's inappropriate too. And as long as you're comparing yourself to something horrible, you're always going to find someone worse. That's not, God, shape my view of entertainment. I want to have a God-honoring, gospel-centered view of entertainment because entertainment isn't wrong in and of itself. It's not. But what does a gospel-saturated mind, how does that look at entertainment? Because I'm telling you, on the whole, Christians are failing miserably at this issue. We've been kind of pushed forward and forward. And 20 years ago, man, people would have been like, what are you doing? And I can tell you the first Christians would not be able to fathom the entertainment habits of modern Christians. They wouldn't even, they, they like just couldn't get it. Now here's another example on the completely other side of, of, of the spectrum. Think about 
beliefs that we hold on to. Think about, um, I've been, say, say you've been raised, ever since you were little, you've been raised to believe ABC about this political issue and XYZ about this social issue. So you hold to these political and social issues, and then you become a Christian. And you've always believed these, and you've always held on to them, and your friends hold on to them, and you believe this about this political issue and that about this social issue. And what you do is you kind of try to find a way how to have Jesus sort of baptize, like cleanse some of these issues in a way that you can still moderately hold to them. You could find a way that sort of makes sense for you to be a Christian and hold on to certain things. Now, that's not to say that everything you believed in before you became a Christian has to be thrown away, but it is to say that every position you hold about whatever political issue or social issue or whatever controversial issue of the day is, that must be brought to the feet of Jesus where you say, Lord, you inform, you shape the structure, you shape and form the vessel. Tell me what my king would have of me. You do not bring your existing old framework and structure and say, Jesus, just pour a little bit into that thing. You say, God, it's before you. Teach me, shape me, inform me. I give all of it to you. And again, that's just a different posture. It's a different posture. So the gospel has to be primary. So we're going to transition into communion. And what I want to do in these these closing moments as we enter into communion, just challenge all of us to be thinking about different, different areas of our lives where we might be kind of trying to fit the new wine of the gospel into some pre old brittle structure that cannot contain it. It could be a little thing, small thing. It, it, doesn't, it's, it, it doesn't matter. But just take some time to think about that. Because I'm sure, I'm sure we're all doing it in, in one way. I gave two examples, but there's, there's thousands of ways. The gospel has to be primary. The new wine of the gospel refuses to be put into some old structure. The vessel has to be made new and then allow itself to be shaped and formed for the new wine. So what is it? The wonderful thing about communion is that it brings all of these images kind of into focus and it reminds us why we do this every week because the gospel is central. And Paul says, I long to come to you to preach the gospel. And so every week when we take this, we're reminded of the gospel, Jesus' death, his life, death, and his resurrection. And so it puts things into focus for us. It tells us, put the lens back on. Put the lens of the gospel back on. We see everything through the victory of Jesus. So let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. Now, before we take this and remember, I want us to remember what the broken body of Jesus accomplishes. Our forgiveness. And if you've put your faith in him, before you take this, you remember, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are a vessel made fit and worthy for the new wine of the gospel. He's done that for you. It is his grace and his hand. 
Now it's your job to allow him to shape and to form you. So let's remember the death of Christ. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It was wine. How was wine made? Grapes are pressed. The grapes bleed out to form juice. And then that juice begins to do something. As the fermentation takes place, something new is created. And Jesus' blood is poured out on our behalf to make something new. We sang last week, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's pressed, he's crushed, he bleeds out. And in his bleeding out, something new can be born. And so, Lord, we pledge our allegiance to you. We promise to proclaim your life, death, and resurrection until you return. And Father, as we close this service, we want to recommit to allowing you to shape and to form us. May the wine of the new gospel do its work inside of us. We want to submit to your lordship in all areas. We don't want to hold anything back. We want to have everything in our life be ordered around you. We give you thanks for the work of the gospel, for the fact that it is by grace through faith that we are made fit and worthy and that we can now declare ourselves to be fit vessels for the new wine of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.